So unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple days, you're probably all fully aware of Hurricane Ian and the devastation that it's caused specifically down in Florida, but now too as it's made its way up the East Coast. I suspect like me, much of your week's prayers were spent talking to God about protecting the people down in that part of our country. There's some people I know down there, so they were of course on my mind. We have several congregations that are down in Florida, so I also was thinking about them. And what we often do in times like these is we pull together and try and do our best to help out. I know there's already calls coming in for donations and other things like that, but sometimes being so far away we feel kind of helpless, and we shouldn't because one of the most helpful things we can do is to call on God, to be God, to in his gracious and compassionate way help those who find themselves in desperate need. So you can imagine how disappointed I was this week when I was watching a weather station uh, and it was kind of giving the progress of the hurricane. And then I would have updates like this, kind of talking about what devastation had taken place, what uh, 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 actions were in place to try and help the people, like those especially stranded in their homes. And I was, I was very uh, uh, kind of intrigued in that. I was very concerned that there would be a lot of loss of life. What was so disappointed was, while this was a simple report on the weather and on the progress of the recovery, there were several reporters who tried to make this into a political argument. They kept asking question after question, which was leading the conversation away from the simple facts of, hey, hurricanes are devastating. This one's not over. These are the things we can do to help. Part of what frustrated me is because these are those times, especially in our country, when whatever differences there might be need to be set aside, and we all pull together, much like we have in the past, because we recognize there's a great need, and of course, having been touched by the love of God, we want to do what we can to help out. Now, before I say another word, I want you to understand that this lesson today is not about politics. Um, uh, for those of you who have been longtime members, you know this very well. For our guests and visitors, I have made it my own personal goal never to make the teaching of God's Word about politics. I find that I'm far better served if I simply trust the good Lord in these matters, and I trust that He gives you the wisdom to decide for yourself the best way to vote, the best way to uh, speak what you believe to be true, and I wouldn't want to ever do anything to hamper that. That said, I do want to tell you what this lesson today is about. It's not about politics. It's about the culture. I fear we've reached a point in this country's culture where we're no longer able to have a courteous or civil conversation with most people. What I'm finding to be true, and especially you can imagine that as a messenger of God's word, and you simply try to offer godly advice or a simple message of God's love. And oftentimes what we're running into is people who not only don't want to hear it, but they become somewhat even violent and abusive when you speak about those things. Sadly, it feels like we've gotten to the point where the only way to have a conversation in this day and age is an argument. Case in point, what I was describing earlier about what I had hoped would be a simple weather report in progress on recovery. The reason why this is so concerning is because not only has it brought our country to a point where it's like people cannot have useful and beneficial conversations with each other, but what I fear is the devil is using this new cultural aspect, we call it cancel culture, to deter us from willingly sharing the truth of God's love. I think about the history of the Christian church and the many things that the devil has tried to take advantage of to, to shut Christians up. And maybe you recall that at those times of persecution, that's when the church spread the fastest and the farthest. It seems he's gotten much more clever 
and he's come across the, maybe the best way to shut Christians up is this modern culture. Because if you say something that people don't agree with or they don't like to hear, they almost immediately want to cancel you. Now maybe that's not as much on your radar as it is on mine, but as I study the cultural trends in this country, especially for the sake of the gospel, we're running into all kinds of issues and all kinds of situations. And where part of us probably want to throw up our hands and go, well, what can we do? I would suggest that today's lesson will help us to be educated as to taking a Christian approach with a heart filled with love to have important conversations with people, even those who don't want to hear it. Apologetics seeks to give incredible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My name is Bobby Conway, and we are actually down here at RZIM getting some of the speakers. And Abdu Murray, you are one of the itinerant speakers for the national speaking team. Overseeing the team as well, right? I am, North American Director, yeah. Yeah, so, well, we're glad to have you on the program. We thank you for your writings and your work and your ministry. Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Would you say that we are in a post-truth culture? I think the answer is a resounding yes to that, actually, and I think that it's very different than a post-modern culture. Post-modernism rejected the idea of objective truth altogether, and, of course, that's self-defeating, as you well know. You know, if someone says there's no such thing as truth, you simply ask them, is that statement true? And it all falls apart. Post-truth is different. Post-truth doesn't reject truth's existence. It just subordinates it to feelings and preferences. So a post-truth person would say, yeah, there's objective truth. But if it conflicts with my preferences, then I don't care. My preferences matter more. So something is post-truth if it elevates feelings and preferences above truth and facts. And I think what you're seeing today, whether it's in the realm of politics, whether it's in the realm of sexuality, whether it's in the realm of religion, is a post-truth culture that elevates those preferences to the point where if I don't uh, affirm your preferences, now I'm labeled hateful things like bigot or fascist or whatever it might be. And on all sides we're doing this, on all sides, because we're elevating our agendas above what's true, actually. I think the way to actually combat that and to come back at this post-truth culture is forming solid argument, but also showing people what the consequences of living in a post-truth culture actually are. And the consequences are we lose our sense of reason, we lose our sense of accountability, because our preferences matter more than anything else, and we lose our sense of human value. How is that the case? Well, think about it. Um, we're no longer talking about freedom in this country. We use the word freedom, what we really mean is autonomy. And autonomy comes from two Greek words, autos meaning self, namos meaning law. So we don't want to be free, we want to be laws unto ourselves. Freedom has boundaries, and that boundary is truth. When you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. Here's the problem. If my preferences matter more than truth, and someone else's preferences matter more than truth, and I'm a law unto myself, and that person's a law unto themselves, when my preferences clash with their preferences, truth won't be the deciding factor because truth's on the bottom shelf. It won't be truth, it'll be power. And that is a recipe for chaos, where we lose reason, accountability, and a sense of human value. And that's what happens when truth is gone. We become enslaved to our autonomy, which is why Jesus so remarkably says in John chapter 8, you will know the truth, and this truth will set you free. Jesus links truth and freedom. Post-truth says autonomy leads to freedom. Jesus says it's truth that leads to freedom. So not only will you get a lesson in some Hebrew this morning, but you already got a lesson in some Greek, autonomous, I want to rule myself. 
And I think that's pretty much where things are at in our culture today, where the truth of God's word has been demoted beneath people's own sense of right and wrong and their own feelings for what they want or don't want. So it's a breath of fresh air when we come to our lesson today, this man lesser known, Micaiah, and we find out that his lesson that he has for us today is that you can't cancel real truth. But it goes beyond that because you've probably grown up hearing God's word is always true and it is powerful and effective and that we as Christians we should be sharing it. But there's some insight in here that Micaiah offers us because he has to deal with a man who did not want to hear the truth. He wanted to cancel it. And the man was very powerful. And Micaiah got himself into some trouble for speaking truth, but he was compelled to do so. This is the verse of our study. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So our lesson is from 1 Kings. I've cited the fact that it's also, there's a parallel lesson recorded for us. It's, a, it's the same account just with some other details in 2 Chronicles 18. And I know some of you like to study these lessons in more detail throughout the week, so I wanted to make sure you were aware of that. I will make one reference to that, uh, and I'll show you how some detail is added even to today's lesson. Okay, since today's lesson is this one verse, we need to spend some time establishing the context and details of this lesson. So let's do that first historically. Um, this account takes place after the kingdom of Israel had divided itself into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And you might recall it was Solomon's son who made the bowhead mistake that led to the divided kingdom. Two kingdoms means two line of kings. And I've shared that with you here. Israel's kings and Judah's kings. And of course, Israel's kings, the line is much shorter because it was in 722 the Lord allowed the Assyrians to destroy the kingdom of Israel because of their unbelief and idolatry. We're right about in the middle of the 8th century BC, and you can see that the two kings who are ruling at this time, in the southern kingdom of Judah, it's Jehoshaphat, and the northern kingdom of Israel, it's Ahab. And I would suspect of the two names, that's probably the one that we're more familiar with, unfortunately, for a lot of wrong reasons. All right, so the premise for this account has to do with the city of Ramoth-Gilead. Here's the point. Uh, King Ahab, who was ruling the north, wanted to retake the city of Ramoth-Gilead, which had previously been in the region of Israel, but now it's under the control of this foreign nation of Aram. The Aramites had been an enemy of both the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah for quite some time. Jehoshaphat and Ahab got together, and Ahab proposes, hey, why don't you join forces with me, and together we'll fight against the Arameans, and then I can reclaim this territory. Now, he uses as a premise for this the special uh, place and purpose that this city served. If we go back to the book of Joshua, when the Lord was preparing the people to take the land of Israel, the land of Canaan at that time, the Lord was establishing certain ways in which that land would be distributed. And amongst all of those plans, he said, I want you to designate six specific cities. And he refers to them as cities of refuge. There were three on the east side of the Jordan. There were three on the west side of the Jordan. And these cities would serve as places of refuge, literally, where if somebody who was accused of a capital crime, they could go to that city in order to make sure that they got justice. What that means is, is that once somebody entered that city, they were off limits from, uh, if you will, vengeance by the family, and things would have to go through the, the judicial court system, and it would be taken care of according to godly laws. Well, they had lost this city, and, and Ahab kind of implies, you know, it's important that we get it back. 
Truth of the matter is, Ahab did not care about justice whatsoever. This was a pride thing for him, and he just wanted more land to control. And you might think, well, how can we make that kind of judgment against Ahab? It's because of what Scripture teaches us about Ahab. Of the two kings, as I said, you probably know more about Ahab because he was so evil. I've listed what I think are probably the two most prominent accounts telling us about this man, although there's other parts of Scripture that do describe him. Uh, one I remember all the way back from my Sunday school days, Naboth's Vineyard. There was a man by the name of Naboth who lived next to uh, Ahab's castle. He had a beautiful vineyard, and Ahab wanted it. And according to the uh, civil laws that God established at Sinai, he couldn't sell it to him. He couldn't even give it to him. So it was Ahab's wife, Jezebel. And you know how that name goes. She actually came up with a plot to murder Naboth, and then Ahab stole the property. Because even if Naboth had died uh, in a legal and right way, it should have gone to his children or to his his relatives, and yet Naboth just took it. It shows us that Naboth has a heart that is selfish, and he cares about himself and not other people. The other account comes a couple chapters before that, and you might be well be aware of this one. This is the contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah the prophet that took place on top of Mount Carmel. A lot of people don't realize this, but it was uh, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel who introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. Don't get me wrong, they had plenty of false gods before then, the false gods of the Canaanites, but Ahab and Jezebel imported this other false religion into Israel, and it had become so popular, the contest was between 400 prophets of Baal and the one man Elijah, and of course God showed everybody there that he alone is the true God. Those are the ways in which we know Ahab, and so we know he's not only a selfish man, but he's a godless man. That is to say, he doesn't believe in the one true God. We know a lot about Jehoshaphat, but again, I don't think we remember it as much. I've listed there some references for you if you would like to do further study. There were five good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jehoshaphat was one of them. Uh, some of the things, if I can summarize what's in those readings, his father Asa had begun reforms in the land of Judah because they too had fallen away from the worship of the true God. And once Jehoshaphat became the king, he followed up on his father's reform. In fact, taking him to the next level, he even hires out teachers who would go throughout the land and reteach the word of God to the people because they had forgotten it. It's like everybody threw out their Bible and they didn't even know what God was about. He had also uh, served well as a dare I use the word political king, in that he had established uh, uh, forts around the borders of Judah. He had uh, improved the military. And quite honestly, it was during his reign that Judah enjoyed uh, a peace and tranquility. They were prosperous. Things were very good. All in all, Jehoshaphat was one of the best kings that the nation of Judah ever had, except he had a fatal flaw. And that's kind of implied to us and told to us in this lesson. And that's why I also share with you the alternate... Uh, account of Jehoshaphat or this account because there we uh, we're told that Jehoshaphat made a mistake. He had allowed one of his daughters to marry one of the sons of Ahab. Now that was pretty commonplace back in those days. They're purely political uh, marriages which basically combines two nations and in a sense I think Jehoshaphat had good intentions. He wanted to bring peace between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom but what it did was it opened them up to compromise which we see now taking place in today's lesson. The reason why you would marry one of your children to one of the other king's children is who would attack a country 
and I'll end up maybe killing your own child. So this was, alliance was strong, but it also becomes now the premise for what takes place in our account. There is something else I want to share with you in the uh, historical context leading up to this. And it has to do with the preliminary events. They come, these verses come before our lesson today, and this was just no simple happenstance or a coincidence of events. There was, if you will, behind the scenes, something else taking place in heaven. Uh, where a evil spirit, uh, I'm going to call it a Job-like event, it could have been the devil himself, comes to God and offers to entice Ahab into this war. This would be God's way of judging Ahab because ultimately this was going to end in his death. He was going to be killed during the battle. And I, I share this with you because it shows us something else about what can happen, not only in our conversations with each other, but even as we do our very best to deepen and practice our faith, is sometimes things in this life will tempt us to compromise our principles. And, and that's what happened with Jehoshaphat. He clearly heard Micaiah say this was more than just a battle over territory. This is something that had already been discussed amongst God and the angels, and there was a plan afoot to use this as judgment against Ahab, and Jehoshaphat still went along with Ahab's plan to attack the Arameans, ultimately a decision he regretted, and certainly Ahab did as well. Now that's the historical background, and it's very important then to understand, if you will, the train of thought within the story of the account itself. And if you go to the chapter, it begins by telling us that there had been a peace between the northern kingdom of Israel and this foreign nation of Aram for three years now. And that information is provided because if Ahab had left things well enough alone, this peace could have continued. Certainly he wouldn't have had as much territory as he wanted to get his grubby fingers on, but at least his people would not have put, been put in harm, and who knows how long his life might have gone on. So the two kings get together, and again, remember there was that marriage that made this for a convenient get-together, and Ahab proposes that Jehoshaphat join forces with him, and they go attack the Arameans and especially uh, get back Ramoth Gilead. Part of his reasoning for why this was such a good idea is he said, I've already got 400 prophets that are telling me not only is this a good idea, but they're prophesying that we will win this battle and we will get this land back. What you need to know is those 400 prophets were not prophets of the true God. These were prophets of Baal. And like any false prophet, they have no clue what the future holds. In fact, no godly prophet knows what the future holds unless God himself reveals that information to the prophet to deliver to the people. Now, you can tell Jehoshaphat is a man of good character because as Ahab's laying out his argument for going to war, He's going, yeah, I know, I hear you're 400 prophets, but is there a prophet of the true God in the land? Could we consult with him? And King Ahab says, yeah, there's one. It's this man by the name of Micaiah. But he already, if you will, stacks the deck. He says, I don't like this prophet because he always says bad things about me. Uh, and, and the problem was is it wasn't that Micaiah insulted King Ahab. It's that he was telling God's truth, and Ahab didn't like what God had to say. Quite literally, Ahab is saying, I, I don't like what God thinks about me. Ahab wanted to do whatever Ahab wanted to do. Well, Jehoshaphat said, okay, I get that, but I still would feel much more comfortable about this if we heard from this one true prophet of God. So here's what happens. Ahab reluctantly sends a messenger to go get Micaiah, and as he approaches Micaiah, he says, listen, this, this is what we're getting you to do. We need you to come and, and talk to us about this battle. 
And then he adds, you know what? There's already 400 prophets who say this is a good idea. Why don't you just not rock the boat and go along with all them? You know, in a worldly perspective, maybe that makes sense. One against 400, who would like those odds? But Micaiah, compelled by God, says, I, I can only speak the truth. That's what I'm commissioned to do. That's what I'm called to do. That's what my track record has been. Why do you think Ahab doesn't like me so much? Because I keep telling him the truth, and he just doesn't want to hear it. Well, Micaiah agrees to go with, and upon reaching uh, the two kings, he makes this prophecy, attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. And he says this, Shortly after telling this messenger, I can only speak the truth. Now, as you read through this account, this is very confusing. It almost seems like uh, Micaiah is deliberately lying. But if you take a step back and you understand the context thoroughly, we find out that this is uh, a place in Scripture, maybe the only place in Scripture that so clearly shows us a linguistic tool that most of us are familiar with. It's sarcasm. Micaiah's being sarcastic with King Ahab. Literally, he's telling him the opposite of what he means. Now, sarcasm is a, an effective tool of communication, but a word of caution. Unless sarcasm is used in the right way and at the right time, it usually ends up simply harming people, either their reputation or their, their feelings. And sometimes, let's be honest, people need to have their feelings hurt a little bit, like Ahab did here, but we have to be very careful how we use this linguistic tool of sarcasm. What we need to understand is, is that Ahab and Micaiah had a long and storied history. In fact, that was part of the reason why Ahab told Jehoshaphat, let's not listen to Micaiah, let's not even bother getting him, because he always says bad things about me. It's this history that leads to Micaiah using this tool of sarcasm to basically say to Ahab, what am I doing here? You never listen to me anyway. You don't want to hear what God has to say. So, if you only want your prophets to say what you want to hear, then go ahead and attack. You'll be victorious. Great. Good idea, Ahab. He's using sarcasm to prove to Ahab that not listening to God, canceling the truth, the real truth, always ends badly. And it did. Israel lost the battle, and Ahab dies as a result. And if only he had listened, and Jehoshaphat as well. In fact, what Ahab goes on to do is, I, I get it, and we hear that he understands this sarcasm, but basically he compels Micaiah, would you just speak plainly? What should we do? And he wasn't concerned about his own sake. He was concerned about partnering with Jehoshaphat. Can you say the right things to convince this guy to go along with me in this battle? In fact, that's what he does. He turns to Jehoshaphat, and he blames this all on Micaiah. He, see, he always says bad things about me. One of the other things to understand is, is that when he asks for Micaiah to speak the truth, he doesn't really understand what he's asking for. I, I get it. He's rejected God's truth again and again and again. But this is a prophecy about the end of his life. And up until this time, Ahab had not had to deal with anything like that. And again, I would caution you as to how you might use sarcasm. And I've run across some pretty sarcastic people. And I've, I've unfortunately abused that tool myself at times. 
But you need to understand that the heart behind this message comes directly from God. And he cares not only about Micaiah, not only about Jehoshaphat, but about Ahab too. And if Ahab won't listen to the truth, God will judge him in such a way that he becomes an example for others. That if you cancel God or try to, it always leads to death. Well, there's a few other things. It was at this point then Micaiah reveals that whole heavenly conversation that takes place. And the fact that he is actually prophesying truth on behalf of God. At which point then the chief priest of these false prophets of Baal gets up and slaps him across the face. Go ahead, prophesy. It's very similar to what happened in the Lord's own ministry. You see, not only was the uh, king rejecting uh, Micaiah's truth, but now the religious leader in the land was also trying to cancel Micaiah's truth. And as the end result, and because Micaiah was willing to stand up and speak the truth against powerful people, he's ordered to be dragged away, thrown into prison, and that, from that point on, he only gets bread and water. I wonder how many of us would make that bargain. I will speak the truth. Yeah, but I'm going to eat bread and drink water for the rest of my life. Kind of a challenge. This is where our lesson begins. And this is what's so insightful. Before he goes, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. What Micaiah is doing is he's staking his reputation as a prophet of God on the very principle that we read about in the book of Deuteronomy. That you will be able to tell whether somebody is actually speaking on God's behalf because what they say, does it follow a pattern of coming true or do they always lie? In fact, if Ahab had just taken a step back, if Jehoshaphat had been much more objective about this and considered what the prophets of Baal had been telling Ahab versus what Micaiah had been telling Ahab, it would have been a pretty easy decision to very quickly and clearly decide going to war was a bad idea. And yet, oftentimes when it comes to the truth, people just don't want to hear it. In fact, they will reject it. In fact, they will try their very best to cancel it. I don't know if this has occurred to you or not, but sometimes speaking the truth is an easy thing to do, and sometimes it's a difficult thing to do. If it's kind of insignificant matters, it's easy to speak the truth. Yeah, the Packers are better than the Vikings, even though they lost. It's, it's just true. Come on. But when it comes to serious things, that's where oftentimes we might even end up staking our lives, at very least our reputations, when it comes to matters of life and death. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it seems almost like on a weekly basis now, some matter of life and death comes up. And I don't know if you sense this or not, especially amongst Christians, that oftentimes the safer course of action is to just keep our mouths shut. And there are times where that's an appropriate way to proceed. But unfortunately, oftentimes, it isn't. Because what's being lost are important and good conversations with people that literally are matters of life and death. And some of these things need to be addressed, discussed, and resolved. I don't need to argue with you about politics over whether or not we should join together and help the people who've been harmed by Hurricane Ian. It's as simple as that. And yet, look at how effectively the devil has worked against us and sometimes against the church, and sometimes within the church, because it seems safer, or maybe even seems wiser, to just keep our mouths shut for fear of being canceled. 
might say, okay, I, I get that. I've seen that. Maybe I've even experienced that. But what does that have to do with Micaiah? Well, Micaiah shows us that God has given us the ability to come up with some pretty creative ways to communicate with each other. And again, I'm not telling you all to work on your sarcasm, but I'm suggesting that it behooves us Christians not to simply argue with other people, but to come up with good and clever ways to actually have a discussion. To that end, I'd like to recommend this book. And here I have to give kudos to my wife because she's the one that turned me on to this book. It's not a Christian-authored book. It comes from the professional world. But if you choose to get one of these and read through it, you will find that the basis of it is morality. It's simple respect for other people. It's simply caring about the other person and caring about their perspective and point of view. It isn't just, oh, you have to think and believe the way I do. It's let's have a conversation, let's share information, and then I'll let you make up your own mind. But at least people are talking. Instead of letting the devil cancel us as Christians, God, through Micaiah, encourages us to speak up out of love, carefully, cleverly, because there's only one alternative. All right, I love my country very, very much. And in honor of the freedom I get to enjoy every day, I would like to plant a very small, very subtle American flag in my yard. Oh, wow, really? An American flag in 2020 with everything that's going on right now? That is just so incredibly tone deaf. You know what? If you're going to put an American flag, I got just the thing. I will put this in my front yard. What do you think about that? Oh, okay, Black Lives Matter, really? I mean, sure, we can all agree that we need to end racism, yes, but the organization, absolutely not. I got just the response for that. If he's going to put out that sign... I'm gonna put out this sign. Oh, wow, blue light, you know what? That is so, so disrespectful. I mean, sure, he may just value the police force that has taken an oath to protect us even to death, but that is just, I mean, what do you want me to do here? Just understand something from someone else's perspective? Absolutely not. You know what, if he's gonna put out that sign, I'm gonna put out this sign. Boom. I stand with, you know what? Okay, maybe he's just trying to say that there are a lot of people in this country that are very frustrated with what's going on and they don't feel like their voices are being heard. And I get that, but that is not what this is about. This is yard politics war. All lives matter. Okay, you know what, uh, that's a very simple phrase, but I have still managed to find a way to be offended about it. If you're gonna... Oh, say, can you see? This should end this argument once and for all. I bet he's got another sign up. What has he got this morning? Oh. And I angered my neighbor so much that he moved to get away from me. I like that guy. I wish we just would have had a conversation like adults together, and we would have realized that we have a lot more in common than we do different. Okay. Hopefully you got the fact that that was a, a parody. And I chose one that uh, events passed because you heard him say 2020. So none of this matters. And part of this has to do with the fact that we're just, what, several weeks away from the midterm elections. Let me tell you how real this is and how we all struggle with this. As I sat down and studied this lesson, part of me knew where this had to go. Because the devil from the very beginning, ever since sin has been part of this world, has tried to cancel the real truth of God. And since he can't shut God up, then what he tends to do is try to shut up 
God's children. I wrestled internally whether or not I should actually preach this sermon, given the political climate of our country today. But it dawned on me that the devil was trying to do with me the very thing that he was trying to do with Micaiah. And that's why I needed you to understand, this isn't about politics. Vote for whoever. God's in control. I know that. What I'm concerned about is how effectively the devil has caused us to be quiet, and if we're not being quiet, to want to argue. What kind of message does that send to a world that desperately needs to hear how much God loves them and that we're the messengers of that amazing message? So either the devil would have us not say it or say it in such a way where people simply reject it because we've already turned them off, much like the man in the video. This is where some very insightful things come from this man, Micaiah. And it doesn't just apply to his day and age. It applies now. First of all, we have him say, mark my words, which is a horrible translation. Because it makes it sound like before they drag Micaiah off to prison, he's threatening all of the people there. I'm right, you're wrong, you're going to go to hell. That's not what he's saying. It's this neat word in the way it's used. Sama means to hear intelligently, to give ear to, to discern. And that seems to be the one gift that is lacking in the world today is to listen with discernment. What he's urging the people to do, because Ahab won't listen to him, is listen to what you're hearing here, people, and discern. And to discern means to make a responsible and moral judgment about what words you have heard. That isn't to interpret what somebody's saying. It means I hear what you're saying, but I disagree. And I can do that civilly. Certainly the subjects of Ahab could say, no, let's not go to war. In fact, didn't Micaiah just tell us, if you leave well enough alone, we continue in peace? What people wouldn't beg their king to do that? He says, please, people, listen with discernment. And there's something else here, not only in the way that he uses this word, but then the entire context is that there's a certain responsibility when it comes to communication. Especially amongst us Christians, we need to be reminded, our responsibility is, one, to speak the truth. It is not our responsibility to change people's minds or people's hearts. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Unfortunately, sometimes we get in the wrong lane and we think, I need to convince you to think the way I think. And that's not at all what God says we're to do. In fact, if you think of the world's best communicator, Jesus Christ, who always spoke the truth and always did it in the most loving way, he also was rejected. They canceled him by killing him. That's the lot that the Lord has given us in this world. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying this is a lost cause. What I'm trying to encourage us all to understand is, is that God asks us to do one thing, to speak the truth and to do so with a loving and compassionate heart, much like our Savior did. And then let the rest up to the Holy Spirit. And he promises he will do what he plans to do. In the case of Ahab, it was judgment. In the case of Jehoshaphat, he went on to continue to be a good king over the nation of Judah. Yes, he made some mistakes along the way. But God forgave those, just as God forgives each of us. But sometimes we make bad decisions or choose the wrong words, and yet God says, I love you. In fact, I love you enough to send him to save you. 
There's one other thing I'd, I'd like to wrap into this message, and, and then we'll wind it down. It has to do with the, the prayer that Jesus prayed uh, on the way to the cross. He himself recognizes that from the very beginning, the devil has done everything he can to undermine the truth. And what I've been talking about this morning isn't the new cultural problem. You, you see it very much alive and well in Micaiah's day. It was alive and well in Jesus' day. It was alive and well at the very beginning. Is The devil wants mankind to question God's truth and ultimately to question God's love. That should encourage us all the more as members of God's church and adopted children of God to make it a priority in our lives to share that truth as often as we can. I'm not telling you you have to go door to door, but I'm asking you to watch for opportunities that when the Holy Spirit opens a door to you, that with a heart filled with love, much like our Savior, you would speak his truth. I would also ask you, if it is within your ability to do so, to hone your communication skills. Jesus didn't need to do that. He got it perfectly. But he does talk about the Holy Spirit enhancing those abilities in us. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify them means to make them more holy. Make them more like I created them to be. To care about one another and to speak loving words on behalf of the Lord. And hopefully, as those opportunities arise, the Holy Spirit will bless you to share the truth in the proper way, with the right motivation, and then simply to live up to your responsibility of letting the Holy Spirit taking it from that point and to work in people's hearts and lives. I don't know about you, but I find it so comforting to know that my only job is to tell you what is true. And once you leave here, then God's got the hard work of convincing you whether or not what you heard was actually a message of the Lord. And whether or not those words that God himself speaks, like through men such as Micaiah, ring true in your ear, and whether they compel you to live in such a way that you recognize, but also testify to this world, that you just can't cancel the real truth. The most repeated question by Jesus during his ministry was this. Have you never read? Have you never read? Underneath that simple question is a life-altering implication. You should read the Word of God. That's why Jesus also says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knows that there is a spiritual hunger inside of every human heart that can only be satisfied by consuming the words of God. Christian, give yourself to the Word of God. The Word of God is a rock, strong and steady. It doesn't budge, break, or crumble under pressure. It's an anchor in the storm, keeping us calm when everything around us is chaotic. The Word of God is a mirror, showing us who we really are. You don't just read the Word of God, it reads you. It's a treasure beautiful in every dimension and worth every effort of discovery. It brings endless joy and eternal riches to all who find it. It's a fire spreading across the world to bring heat and light. It's a river bringing life and power to everything it touches. The Word of God is a seed planted deep inside of our hearts, producing the fruit of holiness and righteousness. 
The Word of God is a sword, dividing true and false, right and wrong, good and evil. It's a hammer, crushing what needs to be crushed and breaking what needs to be broken. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to show us our path. So let the voice of God be the first, the last, and the loudest voice in your ear today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. Give yourself to the Word of God.